but what Willard is saying is that to the to the left, your personal forgiveness or barcode and God standing isn't the point. It's non-essential. And to the right, your work in the community, you're doing the kingdom bringing is secondary at best. But in, in, even at that, it is non-essential. Well, welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I feel like, first of all, I have to apologize for not getting anything out for quite a while. It's been at least a few months, I believe, since I've posted anything. Uh, I could have excuses like uh, school is about to wrap up. I have been looking for a job and possibly another place to live. All of those things are relevant. Um, I've had some computer issues, but the at the end of the day, I just haven't made the time to do this. So finally, I am. So here we are. So I hope <laughs> all of you have not lost interest and not lost the thread of what is going on here. We are investigating Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. We have talked about Chapter 1, Flying Upside Down, How Our Morals Get Detached from Real Life, How We Can Talk About Ethics and Never Enact Them. And in this chapter, we're going to have two episodes on Chapter 2, and then some some branching episodes after that. But we're going to dive in now to talk about what Willard titles Gospels of Sin Management. And I think it is some of the most profound writing I have ever read in my entire life. It puts its finger exactly on, I think, where our culture still is, on the right and on the left. And he points out both of those are the chapters. We're going to talk about those in these couple episodes here. As you guys might know, I'm still going to England. My GoFundMe is still up. So if you want to help uh, with that, you are more than welcome to do so. It will be in the description below. Uh, as editing this, I should have a few episodes done at one time, so they should be coming out here um, in the sequencing weeks. Uh, I just interviewed for a teaching job um, pretty close to where I am. Uh, and so if you guys could pray for that, that would be amazing. And yeah. So that's where we are right now, and I hope you guys enjoy the first episode on Chapter 2, Gospels of Sin Management. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. As always, here with Daniel, and Daniel got an upgrade, so we both are mic'd up now, for real. Um, Feels good. It does feel good. I think uh, it's going to bring just a little bit more clarity to each of us. Uh, for those of you that pay to listen on the pod and in video, um, but especially for those who just listen on audio, I think it's going to, you'll, you'll notice a little bit of a difference here. So as always, by way of open, I want to do a little bit of recap on what we've been studying. So we've been in our gospel series We've been talking about uh, euangelion, how the gospel is good news, what the consequences of those good news are, what happens when we get those things confused. We confuse the good news for its consequences, how that applies to our justification. Um, in terms of justification, we talked about, uh, what were your phrases? Moral ability? 
and moral potential and depraved inclinations. Correct. Um, I haven't edited this episode yet, so I haven't titled anything, so they keep slipping in my mind. Um, so we talked about that in terms of justification, in terms of the gospel. And then last week, we went through a lot of the ideas in Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy, the first chapter. Flying upside down, which direction is up? How do we know which direction is up? When we have a disconnect of morals and of God, of a transcendent being, or even at the very least a moral law, and when that is totally disconnected from life, there's a lot of things that are the consequence of that. When everyone has, as Newbigin talks about, their own values, their own personal beliefs, and the measurement of that is your sincerity, not the facts or the truth of what you believe, then you live in a truly pluralist society. And that makes it really tough then as a Christian to give something that you would believe is good news if what has been construed as good news is just good advice or a personal belief of which you have, but you are in no position to impose that upon other people because it's just what you believe personally. You know, I believe for me, I opened the episode the other week with my coworker. Well, I do yoga and meditate. My mom prays. But if it leads to the same thing, what's the difference? We'll get to that if it leads to the same thing today hopefully. Um, but with that idea of this pluralistic truth value separation flying upside down, where do we go from here? We started to think about, well, where, for those who say, well, if it leads to the same thing, why does it matter? What is that same thing? And where do you get it? That took us through this cultural moment, the first culture, second culture, third culture, and we did these in terms of Christianity, pre-Christian, Christian, post-Christian, post where the post-Christian becomes antagonistic to the Christian culture. But not only that, and funny enough, in the, in the words of the Australian pastor, they want the kingdom without the king. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, it's what we're going to title the case of the missing teacher. It's a phrase from, from Willard. Um, and then that led to a lot of discussions about the nature of truth. If we're going to have this discrepancy between truth and value and what is proclaimed in society, how do we know what truth is? How do we see things quite literally? What are the consequences of the green book? As Lewis talks about in the abolition of man, creating men without chess. Um, and basically that everyone has a perception of value that informs what they seem to, what they see to be true, literally, and that there is no other way in the world in which to operate. So to act as if all statements of value are equivocal, are of the same value on the same playing field, is literally inoperable. You cannot operate like that. You can't walk out of a room like that literally, because you have to pick a door to walk through and a door that actually leads to outside. <laughs> so laying all that groundwork was very exciting and very um, intense. But 
hopefully today we're going to continue on to chapter two of divine conspiracy continue on with what willard calls and i think this is maybe one of the most important chapters in the book gospels of sin management and when you have splits of truth and value and perception these are some of the consequences and this specifically also gets into stuff that we've been been doing about when you confuse the consequences of the gospel with the gospel itself anything that you want to add on there daniel no no not particularly um i think you did probably the, the summary better than i would have um <clears throat> excuse me i think that the biggest concept that we are trying to bring forward with this as far as today is we're trying to expand on what the kingdom without the king looks like. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about two ways that tends to go more ideologically, religiously, politically. And then one way that kind of umbrellas all of those to a degree. And then mm -hmm. we'll talk about, like you said, the case of the missing teacher, which I think is one of the most fundamental and important things I think that we're going to talk about today and stretching forward. So, yeah. All right. So as said, we are exploring, uh, we're doing a specific study right now through the divine conspiracy of Alice Willard and chapter two gospels of sin management. What does that phrase even mean? Uh, why, why does Willard make this bifurcation? Um, and even that before that, in the intro sections of the chapter, what are some of the ways in which he frames how we think about God's salvific work in us or upon us? You looking for the section? Mm -hmm. Let me, I'm going to start a little bit before what you read, what you marked, but I think it's, it'll lead right into that. So I'll go through that and <clears throat> we can go from there. <clears throat> this is the very beginning of chapter two. How does the grand invitation to life sound today the gospel the bumper sticker gently imposes its little message christians aren't perfect just forgiven a popular song of some years ago said that the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls where there are no subways bumpers will do just forgiven and is that really all there is to being a christian the gift of eternal life comes down to that. Quite a retreat from living an eternal kind of life now. Quite a retreat from Jesus is king. This is the euangelion. Christians certainly aren't perfect. There will always be need for improvement. But there is a lot of room between being perfect and just being forgiven, as that is nowadays understood. You could be much more than forgiven and still not perfect. 
Perhaps you could even be a person in whom Jesus' eternal kind of life predominates and still have room for growth. But now it's this bumper sticker theology has leapt out of traffic into Christian trinkets. There's a little bookmark adorned with flowers, bows, green sprigs, and 14 tiny pink hearts with a tassel on the top. Its center, In the center is a wide-eyed teddy bear that looks as if it might have inadvertently just done something naughty. The message below is, as you will now expect, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Think of the barcodes now used on goods in most stores. The scanner responds only to the barcode. It makes no difference what is in the bottle or the package that it bears, or whether the sticker is on the right one or not. The calculator responds through its electronic eye to the barcode and totally disregards everything else. If ice cream, if the ice cream sticker is on the dog food, the dog food is ice cream so far as the scanner knows or cares. The theology of Christian trinkets says there is something about the Christian that works like the barcode, forgiveness. Some ritual, some belief, or some association with a group affects God the way the barcode affects the scanner. Perhaps there's occurred a moment of mental assent to a creed, or an association entered into with a church, God scans it and forgiveness floods forth. An appropriate amount of righteousness is shifted from Christ's account to our account in the bank of heaven. And all our debts are paid. We are accordingly saved. Our guilt is erased. How could we not be Christians? I don't think it was a from that section. Uh, the biggest thing I think to take away from that selection is this idea that, I mean, it's a gospel of sin management, right? Forgiveness of my sins. It's somehow managing the sin that I or we have. And I think that's ultimately... So then God will scan me quite literally mm -hmm. as a good person. Yeah. And... And it makes no difference what's on the inside of me, right? As long as I have that barcode, the blood of... G I'm washed in the blood of Jesus, right? It's the phrase we usually use. It washes me clean. But, to use a phrase Jesus used in Mark 7... To wash just the outside of the cup or the inside of the cup too. So you can wash just the outside of the cup. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you wash the inside of the cup. But that wasn't, it was Mark 7, sorry. But if you wash the inside of the cup, it necessitates washing the outside of the cup too. Because that's where your soapy fingers, the soapy rag, whatever it is you're using, will naturally touch as well. Are we managing our sin? Or are we doing something more? 
That's the question. And is purely the management of sin the good news? That's, I think, in terms of this whole project, yeah. the question on discussion today. A well-known leader, I think, and as I, as I read these portions of Willard describing the state of affairs, I want you, to th the listener, to think about the things that you've heard preached in church. A well-known leader who has spent most of his life in Christian service, much of it at a national level, recently turned 50. Looking back, he comments in his monthly magazine column that in these last four decades, my faith has truly taken a beating. He tells how from his conversion at the age of 10, he was taught that if I was a Christian, then people would see a marked difference in my life. And that the closer I was to God, the more spiritual I was, the greater and more visible that difference would be. Now, at 50, he has seen so many of his mentors who stumbled and fell, never again to recover their faith. So many truths about the gospel that turned out to be false, so many casualties, so many losses, so many assumptions that turned out to be just that, assumptions, not truth. Finally, he says, I don't believe that anymore that the closer I am to God, the more I'm going to change and people will see a marked difference because those who he knew and saw walked with God and questioned, then changed and turned away. So what really changed? He still believes that Jesus changes you, but his definition of change has changed. Quote, Whatever the change is, it is not so much outward as it is inward. This difference that God makes is often visible only. The suggestion is that the change that makes a person Christian, whatever that is, may be totally undetectable from the human point of view. Only God's scanner can detect it, apparently that is Christian reality now, at least as many of our best-known leaders seem to think so. I'm trying to think of the right words. Also shallow about this line of thinking. It's, it's very prevalent, I think, in our culture. In fact, I think we have entire, this is one of the reasons why in my paper on justification, in our episode that was, um, that used that paper, I took such a hard stance against this typical Calvinist position is that it ultimately, I think, produces this kind of attitude. This mm -hmm. idea that only God sees those predestined, the elect, and those predestined to damnation. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know, and we try to live in a reality in a, in a way that, you know, supposedly we try to live in a way that is in that is congruent with the gospel. But when we make the salvific work of Jesus something that is 
imperceptible to us. Only God can see the elect. What we do is we take out, and I, I do think to a certain degree that that statement is technically true. But when focusing on that so much, because we want God to have this ultimate power and we don't see God accessing any self-control and there being any free will on our part, what you do is you remove the capacity or the incentive for change on our part. You remove the organ and demand the function. You remove the organ and you demand the function. You make men without chests and expect of them virtue. That's what that type of theology does is it makes men without chests, just like the moral relativism of our culture. And in part, maybe the moral relativism of our culture is because of the prevalence of this theology in the second culture paradigm that has existed for so long. Mm -hmm. and that we've moved past, right? Because we want a kingdom without a king. And so we've taken the idea, we've divorced it from any rule of God, but we've simultaneously held on to this idea of the righteous and the sinner. And we need that, forgiveness. That we need forgiveness and that we might not necessarily be able to tell who's righteous and who's the sinner. Because some abstract outside thing scans them like a barcode scans groceries and all it's about is do you have the right barcode on mm -hmm. that's it and that is really really shallow i believed this gospel for most of my life and to some degree still do. And I brought this up numerous times, but the reason I've been so insistent on the idea that do we, like Newbigin says, do we believe that the gospel is a reality with which we will have to contend is that if it's not, if then it's it is advice. just, then it is just good advice and you do only get forgiveness in a special Holy Spirit barcode. And I've been asking myself as I go, this is a conversation I have with one of my pastors. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that as we'll get into with right, that history turns at the resurrection, that there is this new reality we can live into that the god that the parables which we'll get into here hopefully in a few episodes are descriptions not of the ideal christian life although they could be but are descriptions of reality of life and the kingdom do i believe the lord's prayer give it like and this was the this is something we can talk about more in in the future but this was a challenge that I got from, from John, John Rayleigh, and I, I've taken it to heart because I was, we were having this discussion and because he asked me, what have you been reading? And so I talked to him about Wright's book and Newbegin's book and all this stuff. A lot of the stuff we talked about last week. 
And he said, I, I, he said, so how is this affecting your life? And I said, it's made in the, and I gave him the example of the interaction I have with the girl I work with. And then I said, it's also interacted with how I pray because I suck at praying abominably. And I think, I think part of it is because I am far too self-reliant. And like you've talked about, we're in situations where I have no choice but to rely. In many ways, now that doesn't mean I don't do anything. But the past few days, I, as I drive to work, I'll just pray the Lord's Prayer out loud in the car. Father in heaven, hallowed. Our Father, not my Father, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Glory to your name. You are what is at the top of the mountain. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into the fiery trial, but deliver us from evil. Do I think Let me ask let me ask you this. Do you think that's real? That his kingdom comes, his will be done through us on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if the gospel is just a barcode. Sure, I can pray for forgiveness and my ability to forgive, but Why do I care where I put God or how his will comes about in my life? But if Jesus opens up new creation, if he gives us a new way to live, not just because it's good advice, but because it's the actual reality that he wants to bring. then I better be a part of it. How does that affect how I go to work? How does that affect my conversation with my coworkers? How does that affect how I resolve conflict? You know, how does that affect the girls I take on dates? How, how does this affect how I host my friends at my house? You know? And it seems you might be hearing me say all this and you're like, yeah, 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 I follow you. I follow you. And I'm like, but really, but really. Like, yeah, I do all those things because I have a duty to, you know, be a good Christian. 
and I would, I think, halfly agree with that statement. I'm saying I want to be on, I want to be united, loyal to the one who rules the world. So why would I, why would I want it any other way? But many times I do. So a quick, your last statement that you made made me think of this. <clears throat> the examination of the parable that we're going to do later, I guess, will be out in a few weeks after this, um, is part of a sermon that I preached back in January. And as I was preaching that sermon, part of my biggest emphasis was sort of on this Gospels of Sin Management topic. In fact, I pulled a quote from Willard in his introduction at the start of that sermon. And I got several, I mean, it's a Pentecostal church, so I got, you know, the amens and the hallelujahs from the crowd. And my internal reaction, I think, I hope, was different from any external reaction that people could see. Uh, my internal reaction was, I don't want your amens and your hallelujahs. What I want is for you to do what I'm saying. Like, truly, do what it is that Jesus is saying we should do. Because the amens and the hallelujahs from the church pew, they sound nice. And they are nice. And there's nothing wrong with them. What is wrong, though, is when all they lead to is another normal week of leaving church and not tipping your server enough and giving them a hard time on Sunday afternoons. Cussing people off in traffic. A bland work week where you make no difference. Maybe a Bible study with some friends where you interpret the text using reader response criticism as we've talked about before and then back to church next next week to hear a motivational speech to get you through your next week there's a problem with that and what I feel like I've seen in the church, and this is not necessarily the, a problem with pastors as much as I think it's a problem with congregants, though, it may go both ways, is the messages that are preached, even when they're good, are never taken to heart. They're never put into practice. And so... All we have is a pep talk. Because we, 
our barcode's been scanned, right? We feel, we feel great. We're, we're in. We're on the inside. We're in the in crowd. And that's what matters with barcode theology. We're on the inside. We made it across the scanner and out the grocery store door. But we've never thought about the person doing the selecting at the grocery store. Are they going to buy dog food if it rings up as ice cream? That, I think, is a question to ponder. Are we just managing our sin or is there something happening to us in this equation? And I, I want to be, try and be more specific because as I, as you talked and as I thought about this, I, and maybe I was less cynical back then. I know I was, Um, but I remember being involved in the you know, adult ministry and being being really motivated to live right, for lack of a better term. And as I think about it now, I think. I think, well, that Luke might have looked like a better Christian than the current version, which is probably true. But as I am wrestling with this gospel of good news, reality, and truth instead of advice, I continue to think that when that was me, hell-bent on being a good Christian, what was motivating me? Was it, I, I think it really was, and I don't, this is where it's tricky. I think it was motivated by being a Being a good Christian, being morally upright, um, treating people well because of the way God has treated me. And I don't think any of that is bad. Matter of fact, I think it's maybe closer to the truth than I'm giving it credit for. Um But this is something we'll get into in in just a second. But I think 
I think much of it felt sanctimonious. Much of it was motivated by, I want to have an answer for my Tuesday night group on, have you shared the gospel this week? Or, you know, what's going good in your life? And I'm not anti-accountability. Don't hear that. But I was motivated by guilt. And so I don't think it was until, and I was motivated by a, like, again, a moral ability. Um, and so I don't know how much that corresponded to a your kingdom come, your will be done attitude. And I think that that's the adjustment that I'm attempting to make. Well, and one thing that I think is really important to realize is we're harping, we haven't defined these gospels of sin management and the way they operate yet. We're harping on these a lot because our culture focuses on them a lot, maybe almost exclusively. But as we start to define them, what you're going to see is that they're not technically bad or even wrong, at least to some degree. There might be parts of them that go too far and parts of them that are wrong. But they're not necessarily wrong or bad at least in part and so these gospels of sin management should be viewed more as consequences of the gospel and good consequences of the gospel but not the gospel and making it the gospel is not good not good at all you have anything else to add before I read that section from Willard? Yeah. We'll give this uh, essay a fuller treatment probably in some months, but this is from the weight of glory. This is the last, the last bit. Meanwhile, the cross comes before, comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened up in the pitless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest 
and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, so as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of those destinations. Is it, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendship, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. They have never talked, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, creatures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, with whom we work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that, they are to be, that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the, mer the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presuppositions. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for their sins, in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. I'll read that last part again. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feelings for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorified, or the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. If we have that view, how else are we to act? If this is reality what does that mean that also doesn't mean that every single value is valid that means that we have to take into account what's best for our neighbor what's best for ourselves in relationship with our neighbor and what's in accordance with God's will. And as we'll see when we cover the parable, that is one of the most paramount things 
in Jesus, that is the paramount thing in Jesus' message. Love of God and love of neighbor as self. That's it. It doesn't mean it's the gospel, but that does mean that it's a part of the good news that Jesus is king and that he's brought a good kingdom. And that's important to realize. I about sneezed, sorry. Okay. So back to Willard. In the... Uh, in chapter two, Gospels of Sin Management, under the heading, Gospels of Sin Management. Um, in my copy, this is on page 49. It starts, the current situation in which faith professes, uh, professed has little impact on the whole life, which is this problem that we've been talking about, is not unique to our time, nor is it a recent development, but it is currently an in an acute stage. History has brought us to the point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing or wrong being and its, ex and its effects. Life, our actual existence is not included in what is now presented as the heart of the Christian message, or it is included only marginally. That is where we find ourselves today. And Willard wrote this decades ago. I would ask us, has anything changed? And if so, is it better or worse? Once we understand the disconnect between the current message and ordinary life, the failures just noted at least make a certain sense. They should be expected. When we examine the broad spectrum of Christian proclamation and practice, we see that the only thing made essential on the right wing of theology is the forgiveness of individuals' sins. On the left, it is the removal of social or structural evils. The current gospel becomes a gospel of sin management. Transformation of life and character is no part of the redemptive message. Moment to moment, human reality in its depths is not the area of faith and eternal living. Skipping down. What right and left have in common is neither group lays down a coherent framework of knowledge and practical direction adequate to personal transformation towards the abundance and obedience emphasized in the New Testament with a corresponding redemption of ordinary life. What is taught as the essential message about Jesus has no natural connection to entering a life of discipleship to him. And so we're left with gospels of sin management. That's all we have. On the right, we try to manage the sin of individuals. That way the barcode scans them into some eschatological redemptive future. 
where we all float on clouds and play harps and participate in a worship concert for eternity. And on the left, it involves bringing a utopian society of absolute equity and justice to all. Bringing an eternal kingdom to earth and all that that means. What does that have to do with Jesus as king? Something, that's for sure. But that's not the gospel. Thoughts? I, I would just say oh where is it can't find the exact passage but oh here it is here it is it's uh, just above the paragraph you read. And I think this is important when you talk about this split in the Gospels. He says, the history that has brought this about, being filtered through the modernist fundamentalist controversy that consumed American religion for many decades and still worked powerfully in its depths, also has led, this is key, also has led to each wing to insist that what the other takes for essential should not be regarded as essential should not so if you're on the right and you say individuals need their sins forgiven individuals need to you know be people who are going to go to heaven then i'm only going to care about me and my action or my barcode and if my i'm you know washed in the blood so to speak, if I pray and ask for forgiveness, I'm going to make sure I go confess. I'm going to make sure that I have this and that so that my life is right, so that my spiritual state is good, so then I can be good with God. And then to the left, it's, well, hang on a second, because what about how you treat everyone else? What about how the injustices that have been done in the past are to be rectified. What about how uh, the poor people live in your city? What about how, um, you know, women are treated in your church? What about how systems and structures have been built that perpetuate oppression? And like, yes, I mean, you throw all, up all these. Yeah. I was trying to do it without a bunch of buzzwords, but oh, my bad. <laughs> no, you're good. Cause it's, that's how people say it. Yeah. Um, but what Willard is saying is that to the to the left, your personal forgiveness or barcode and God standing isn't the point. It's non-essential. And to the right, 
your work in the community, you're doing the kingdom bringing is secondary at best. But in, in, even at that, it is non-essential. And both of these, you have to like put blinders on when you read the gospels to wholeheartedly believe either side. Do I think my individual standing with God, my sins being forgiven is important? Yes. Do I also think that the ways in which I act, the ways in which the things in which I participate and don't participate in matter? Yeah. Let me give you a secret. So do people on the right. That's why people give up their Netflix subscriptions. That's why people don't watch Disney cartoons. That's why they ban Lightyear or, you know, boycott it. Because they don't want to participate in that structure. Fair enough. But you're a hypocrite. Oh, yeah. Same, same thing on the left. Oh, well, you're... You're all about bringing down... Oh, what was it that... Uh... like those who seem most concerned about the struggle of the people who are dispossessed and poor live in the gated communities mm -hmm. in the suburbs. Yeah. It's called the suburban perch, and I think it's a good phrase. But it's like, okay. If you really care about them, then like Go live there. One of my, uh, one of you know what I'm saying? I'm, and I'm, yeah, I get all the reasons that you wouldn't, obviously. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying that you can call it the hypocrisy on each end. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, but the point remains what, but to, you know, the person who's going to decry perhaps rightfully so social structural evils of, you know, modern day and or the past, like, cool. How's your life though? What do your relationships look like? Are you good with your family? Are you good with yourself? Like, are you forgiven? Well, and one of the things that I think is very interesting is it tends to be the communities that are so fixated on 
social evils and structural systems that don't work properly that also tend to be the most anxious in our society. Mm. Now that's a little bit anecdotal. I understand I'm not citing a, a study or anything. That's from my experience. But I think that that experience, at least for me, has proven to be true. That the people who focus on that, and I think it's because there's this disconnect about taking care of the self in order to be able to take care of other people. There's also this inability to focus on the real world because then that ideology tends to be in the vein of, um, I guess the best way to put it would be um, like the postmodern frameworks that we were talking about last week. Uh, and so I think that those problems do exist and do exist to a rather large degree. I'll put it, I'll put it a better way to sort of amend what I said earlier. I don't know how much, just, just to make the point that each side thinks of what the other says is on non-essential. I don't know if you'd find, you might. In my experience, people I've interacted with, and you can confirm because you go to a way more left-leaning school than I do. Um, I'm more talking about generally the Christians in the sphere that, that I interact with. I don't know how much those that are wholeheartedly sold on a purely, let's say purely, to be specific, purely social gospel are practicing the spiritual disciplines. Yeah. The individual and or communal, I pray with God, myself and as a community, I read my Bible. I, you know, I'm involved in a group Bible study. Um, I fast. I'm chased. All the classic Christian individual and some of them communal, spiritual disciplines. Now, those can be made idolatrous, of course. Um, it's part of my problem with aestheticism, but yeah. I, that's just, I don't know. When you don't have them at all, what does that say about who you are as a person? And I think that problem stems from, that's, that's a really good observation. I think that problem stems from. Listen, I'm not good at all those either. Yeah. I mean, is I'm in seminary. Good at all of them? I read books about the Bible way more than I read the Bible. If I'm going to like for real. Yeah. And I, I think it's a shame. I really do. 
Like yeah. I just explained, I don't pray like I should. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't connect. I, I hate these words we use connect with God. Uh, Cause you, Oh, you mean emotion as I talked about episodes ago, yeah. but like, I'm the vine. You're the, like, how can I not take Jesus seriously as we'll talk about? But like, my, my point is when Jesus will ever decry helping the poor and the neglected people will be like, yes. But whenever he says, if you do these things to be seen, you've received your reward. Would they believe him? Mm-hmm. Willard will talk about this in a minute, but then again, to the right, you know, Oh, you'll go in your closet and pray, but you never do this. And actually Vanderclays put out some interesting content recently about the fall of the uh, mainline liberal churches and has found that actually the conservative evangelical churches do more outreach than the liberal churches, which is fascinating. So anyway, that's a lot of anecdotal stuff. Obviously things worth at least thinking about investigating. If you disagree with us, man, let us know. Um, but at least in our characters, but I, I think it still holds pretty true that those, as Willard says, those on who buy wholeheartedly on either end will exclude the other as non-essential. Yeah. As not necessary. Yeah. So on that, let's dive into one example or a few examples of each. Okay. Um, so in quoting um, Willard, he, he takes okay, a block let me, quote. Let me, pull it up? let me read this paragraph first and then you can jump okay. in on that one. Okay. So this is... Um, a little bit more in that little section on his introduction of Gospels of Sin Management. Willard says, to the right, being a Christian is a matter of having your sins forgiven. Remember the bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. To the left, so to the right, you're a Christian if your sins are forgiven. To the left, you are a Christian if you have a significant commitment to the elimination of social evils. A Christian is either one who is ready to die and face the judgment of God, or one who has an identifiable commitment to love and justice in society. That's it. 